0: We have a very special guest with us to address us this morning. Clark Petticord uh, comes from Boise, he and Ann both, and Clark has been part of the Cole family for a long time. We as a church have been supporting his ministry since 1965. Uh, Clark has been with uh, on staff of Campus Crusade since 1964, and we've been uh, involved in the support the last 16 years. Uh Clark is the director of the crusade work in Germany they have as I if I recall correctly 73 on staff there and about 55 of those are are Germans that uh, he uh, works with and and uh, instructs and motivates and oversees their ministry Clark told me that that uh, ministry in Europe is very different from this kind of ministry in the States when he and his uh, compatriots first went over to uh, Europe. One of them was sharing the four spiritual laws with a friend in England. And he said, I uh, hope I'm not using the illustrations in your message. I haven't heard it yet. He said, uh, uh, open it up and, and uh, talk to a guy in a campus in England and said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And they started to go on, but the guy said, Wait a minute. I have three questions Who is God? Who am I? And what is love? And they realized that it wasn't quite as easy to share in that kind of climate doesn't have all of the uh, uh, backlog of Christian work and, and uh, witnesses we have in America. And after uh, a time there, went back to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School to get a little bit more boned up on philosophy and theology to to be able to to work in that kind of a climate. And it's uh, our privilege to be able to, to participate in the lives and ministries of, of many people throughout the world. I hope that you see yourself as somebody participating in a worldwide movement, in God's movement. We're not just in a thing, some kind of uh, uh, human movement, but we're part of God's program and plan to bring his his saving, liberating message of Jesus Christ worldwide. And as we participate in the church, as we contribute our dollars on Sunday, even in that way, we're able to help uh, support these missionaries like Clark and Ann, and as we pray for them through the week, we help uh, open doors for the gospel and affect their work throughout the world. Well, it's a privilege to have uh, Clark with us to bring us a message this morning. Clark?
1: Perhaps you've uh, noticed in some store or somewhere, often it appears in an office building at a very appropriate point, a little sign that says, If you can keep your head while all those around you are losing theirs, then probably you don't understand the situation. (laughs) And uh, I've noticed in my own experience and as we've traveled around the world that there's a great deal of confusion among people. They feel very insignificant. Sometimes I feel insignificant. Uh, I'm sure occasionally you do as well. And there seems to be a great deal of confusion, particularly among those that name the name of Christ. We seem to feel that we aren't really able to make a difference. As you look at the world situation, you see uh, invasions of Afghanistan. You see uh, humanism taking over educational institutions that were originally founded for the proclamation of the Christian message. As these things happen, we seem to sometimes get the idea that we're really kind of helpless and sort of at the mercy of the winds and the waves that toss us around. I'm convinced that that's a lie. I'm convinced that that cuts the nerve of what God really wants to do in the world today. And I'd like to share with you a little bit this morning about how I am convinced and why I'm convinced That the individual can make a difference. That the individual person, no matter how old they are, no matter how young they are, that there is a tremendous significance to your life and mine in terms of the world. I'd like to uh, read to you, and if you have a Bible you might want to turn there with me, from the last chapter of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians was written by Paul to a church or perhaps a group of churches In the Roman province of Asia Minor, what we now know as Turkey, uh, Turkey now is a poor country, but during that time it was one of the richest provinces of the Roman Empire. And Ephesus was one of the major centers of the province. It was a center of commerce and trade, government, and the Roman armies would go through Ephesus as they were on their way to the eastern borders of the empire to defend them. And Paul wrote to these believers in this strategic and world cosmopolitan city. And in the last chapter of this book, verse 10, he finally sums up what he's really talking about in the, in the book. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, of course, they were used to knowing what power was about in a city like that, economic power, military power. But he says to be strong in the Lord's power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Probably every day as uh, the Christians in Ephesus went to work, they would perhaps see a Roman soldier walking by clad in armor and clanking along. And uh, they were familiar with what armor was all about. And Paul was telling them that we as Christians need to put on our spiritual armor. And then he tells us why. For our struggle, or our warfare, or our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, don't leave anything out, so that when the evil day day comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand, in other words, after the battle is washed over your field, your area of the field, that you'll still be standing. Put on then, stand firm, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith in addition, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Can the individual make a difference? Does it make any difference how we live? I think it does. And the reason it does, as I pointed out last Sunday evening, is that we're involved in an intense cosmic conflict. A conflict that spans all of time and even goes beyond the beginning of time. I'm tempted to talk a little about Star Wars now, but I won't. Uh, But we're involved with forces that are beyond our own human perceptive abilities. We're involved in a in a struggle, in a world that we don't really see with our eyes or ears or our other senses. And the Christian has to hold two truths in tension. These look like two different things to us and we, we cannot resolve them. They seem to be contradictory to one another, and we cannot resolve them in this life mainly because our minds, our human abilities, cannot grasp them and put them into one picture. It's almost as if we had a telescope and we were looking at a star, but there was something wrong with the lens in the telescope, and instead of getting one image, we got two. And we look at these truths, which are really one, but we perceive them only in in these two ways. And these two truths, the Christian has to hold and be committed to both of them. The first truth is, is that God is in control of history and the universe. That nothing happens without God allowing it and God being behind it somehow. He's in control. All the hairs of our head are numbered, and when you brush your hair in the morning, uh, the computer up there changes count that the angel's running, you know. And there isn't a sparrow that falls without God being aware of it or a chucker that gets shot. That God doesn't. There weren't very many chuckers shot this year, I understand. But anyway, God is aware of and knows everything and is in control. The other truth, which seems to contradict that, is that we are involved in a cosmic battle against principalities and powers and dark forces, against a power that is attempting to overthrow God and dethrone him, and that. While the outcome of this battle is clear, God will overcome, what we do is tremendously significant. And my decision and your decision in a small moment of life may make a tremendous impact in the outcome of this entire conflict. Now those two things we have to be committed to and hold both of them to be true at the same time. That's what it means when it says in Scripture, we don't walk by sight, but by faith. We realize these things and are committed to it. But we have to understand this situation if we're going to make a difference in our world today. We have to understand that we're not struggling against human institutions and human powers, but against principalities and spiritual forces that are arrayed against us. Now, I'd like to examine with you a few implications of this truth. It says very clearly We are battling or struggling against principalities and powers in the spiritual world. We're involved in a spiritual cosmic war, not against flesh and blood. And I'd like to examine with you a few implications of this truth. The first implication that I'd like to examine with you is that if this is true, we need to revise our concept of what makes a life significant. We need to realize that things that on the outside seem to spell success may not be the real sign of success at all. I was visiting with Anne's mother last week, or just before, and we were talking about the significance of her life. I don't know if you know Frances. She has multiple sclerosis, is completely bedridden, has been that way for almost 15 years. What is the significance of of a life where you're laying on a bed For 15 years. Well, the world says that's not very significant, really. You're not building buildings or you're not leading armies. You're not being elected to great offices. But if we realize that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but in the cosmic sphere, then that can be a very significant outpost. Francis, by the way, is the secret, I think, of much of what's happening in our ministry. She and many of you pray for us regularly. That is a tremendously significant thing. And the point I'm making is that the outward trappings of success don't always square with what God says success is all about. You know, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews had the view that if you followed God, you'd be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, there's been a significant change of state since Jesus Christ came. The book of Hebrews, the second chapter, says that Christ came to destroy the one who has the power of death, namely the devil. The intensity of the spiritual battle was increased by a quantum jump when Jesus Christ arrived. A beachhead was launched in the very territory of the enemy and the battle became intense as it never was before. The situation has changed and Christians in this time in history cannot expect to be healthy, wealthy, perhaps wise as we follow God. But we must expect suffering. Peter wrote in his letter to the believers in 1 Peter chapter 4, he said, Don't be surprised by your suffering. Don't get shook up about it. It's normal. We need to program into our minds that we are in spiritual battle. In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said to the believers, he said, Unto you has been given, as a gift, not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. There is a cost involved in following Christ. We experience wonderful things. Freedom from sin, forgiveness, a fellowship of people that care about us, brothers and sisters around the world, but with suffering. We need to be prepared for that. And one of the implications of the fact that we are struggling against spiritual powers is that suffering is a part of our existence. In fact, we're involved in the battle. That's what the book of Job is all about. Job gets smashed about on the rocks of life, and the real battle that's taking place, the real explanation for what's happening to him, is in the spiritual area where this giant battle is taking place, where Satan is challenging the authority of God Almighty. And he comes to God and he says, You see, Job, you know what he'll do if you pull the props out from under him? He's going to curse you to your face. And that's the struggle that Job is involved in. Our lives may not always be easy. In fact, we must anticipate suffering because we're part of a spiritual and cosmic warfare. I'd like to just share with you a second implication that I see from this statement that we are wrestling not against flesh and blood, against human structures and people, but against principalities and powers. The second implication is is that you're important, every single one of us. How do we know But that our outpost in this battle may be the most significant place in the universe at that moment? Maybe you work in Crouch, Idaho. Does anybody work in Crouch, Idaho? It seems like the end of the world. How can a post there be important? And yet in the cosmic scheme of things, maybe the temptation you're resisting today or the spiritual victory you're winning may tip the scales in this cosmic battle. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we're wrestling in a cosmic battle. There are no unimportant little people There's no unimportant place in this battle. A shoe salesman at the end of the 1800s probably uh, worked maybe 60 hours a week. I can imagine this man, and it's a true story, as he was working away in his shoe shop selling shoes, he thought maybe that day was a hard day, maybe it was hot. Maybe the shoes that he tried to sell this lady didn't fit and she got upset at him. But in that small shop, he made a choice. No one knows his name today. But he chose to share the message of God's love and forgiveness with a young man. That young man's name was Dwight Lyman Moody. Maybe you've heard of him, Moody Bible Institute, one of the great evangelists, of that century led to Christ by a shoe salesman probably on a day that really didn't go very well but at that moment that small shoe shop in Chicago may well have been the most important place in the universe as far as the spiritual battle is concerned there are no little people and there's no little places if this is true that we are involved in a cosmic conflict We're never alone. God and all of these spiritual beings that we are confronted with are there. I'd like to share with you another implication that I see from this truth that our warfare is not against human beings and human systems, but against spiritual powers and principalities. And that is that if you really want to change things, You've got to change individuals. Changing the structure just merely changes the characters while the plot remains the same. Anne and I were in Leningrad in Russia Uh, this last summer. We had the privilege of spending a couple days there. And we noticed at all of the major intersections in Leningrad that there was a, a policeman standing, and often there was a box that he was in, And he was in radio connection with the entire network of policemen around the city. Well, this was partly to control traffic and things, but there was also another use of it. When the big party bosses pull out of their offices in their black limousines, it is radioed ahead and all of the lights in the city are turned on red along the path that they're going. And the big black limousines speed through the intersections as the rest of the people stand waiting. You tell me that isn't a class system. And yet, what was the great hope of the revolution? The overthrow and destruction of distinctions and classes. A real human hope. But if you're going to change things, you're not going to be able to do it just by switching the characters. You've got to see people change because until the individual is changed you really haven't changed anything at all. That's what and why our lives are so important because you and I as individuals are part of this cosmic battle. We're standing at a place that we don't even know the significance of it. If we give in to sin or temptation in our lives the little white lie maybe just making our income tax report a little bit false. Maybe a little bit of lust. Maybe because we think we're alone we can read the magazine or book or we can engage in envy and anger and it makes no difference because after all, we're not important people. That's wrong. That may be the very most important place in the universe at that moment. You may be engaged in the key battle that could change the history of the world on a cosmic spiritual level. How significant we are. How important. We belong together. We must encourage one another with this truth. Another point I'd like to make that involves this is that as we're engaged in this kind of a battle, we dare not leave our posts when the going gets rough how would it be if you were out on a, on a watch post in war and it got cold and you're stamping your feet and trying to keep warm and bundling up? And you thought, you know, this outpost really isn't significant, is it? It's not terribly important. I haven't seen a bird in the last 24 hours and here I am freezing my fingers off just trying to, 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 to be out here on the border. And we begin to think, it's not important, really. And so we decide, let's throw on the towel, walk back to the warm barracks and warm up a little bit, only to discover that at that very point was the point where the enemy was attacking. How different things could be if we had this picture and dared not leave our post until the commander-in-chief said, I want you somewhere else. Our part of the battle may seem terribly insignificant, but it may be the most crucial place on the entire battlefield at that moment. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says that we are surrounded, not by uh, cowboys and Indians, but it says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, the writer of the book of Hebrews explains in Hebrews chapter 11, he ticks off all these great names of history, the men and women that have stood for Christ, and then he says, now these witnesses are watching us. The picture is that of a Roman Colosseum, or we could even translate into our modern terms of a great stadium. Super Bowl's coming. Maybe we're in, the, we can call this the Cosmic Super Bowl. We're involved in this struggle down on the field. And in the stands are the saints of the ages who have gone on before us. Peter and Paul are standing there. Off to the other side are the angels, these immense spiritual powers that are standing on the side of God. And they're looking down and uh, Peter explains that they intently want to find out what's going on. But they don't seem to be able to understand entirely the whole picture. But they're watching intensely what's going on. And then on the other side are arrayed the forces of darkness that are against God and his kingdom. And we may think we're alone at a particular moment in time. It may seem insignificant what we're doing. But we're being watched. On the one side of the stadium, they're cheering us on, saying, go, go. On the other side, they're saying, no, no. You're going to mess up. You can't do it. Flake out. Leave your post. But our lives are significant down on the field. And until the day comes that we stand before the judge, who's our father, we need to realize that we're being watched. That there's an invisible world that we're playing to. A friend of mine is lives in Ireland. And uh, he shared with me a illustration of this. He was walking on his way to work, and he noticed that a... Uh, familiar picture of a grandfather watching his grandchild. The little girl was standing there skipping rope. And uh, her grandfather was kind of leaning against the door, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. And there were all kinds of other kids standing around, and they were jumping rope too and shouting and playing. And a half an hour later, my friend walked back from the office. He had to pick something up, I guess. And as he walked back, all of the other little children were gone. And there was this little girl, still jumping rope, and the grandfather leaning against the door, 101, 102, 103. Who was that little girl skipping rope for? Not the other children. She was not playing to the audience. She was skipping rope for her grandfather. And that's the way our lives need to be. We may sometimes be surrounded by a chorus of people that say, great, man, you did a tremendous job boy, you did a great job organizing those Bible studies or you did a tremendous job uh, helping out in that situation or I really appreciate you and the way that you do this or that. But will we keep jumping rope even when the audience leaves? Who are we jumping rope for? Who are we playing our lives out to? To the crowd or to the master? We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're also not playing to the crowd. The issue is related to Jesus Christ and who he is and the the centrality that he has in our lives. It's another point I'd like to mention, and that's that we can be assured of victory. You know, there's a tremendous amount of suffering among Christians in the world today. Half a million Christians, 500,000 people perished in the last few years in one small country of Uganda alone. But you know what is the encouraging thing to me is, is that even if our outpost is wiped out, even if the cavalry doesn't get there in time, and we're just smashed between the wheels of history, there's a promise that if we don't play to the crowd, But we play to our Heavenly Father that we're going to be raised alive to rule with Him. And we're going to stand in the victory stand on the final day. When the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. And He will rule forever and ever. There's a beautiful picture in the last book of the Scripture, the book of Revelation, where Christ comes again riding on a horse, a beautiful white horse, and the armies of heaven with Him. My wife enjoys that picture. She likes horses. And she's glad we're going to have a few horses around. But the picture and the point of the whole story is that we will be with him. As long as we can keep that in mind, we never have to worry that our outpost gets wiped out, perhaps that we ourselves die. This is why the Christian martyrs of the early ages could go to their death. To the, with a lion singing with a hymn on their lips and a smile on their face because they knew that although it looked like they were losing they were really winning the greatest victory. And as the uh, church defined it through the ages they used to say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and that's certainly true in the world today. One of the fastest growing bodies of believers is in the Soviet Union right now. Another country that has a very large growing body of Christians is Romania. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We shall overcome, or maybe we should say he shall overcome. But we mustn't forget that our outpost is so significant that a little sin can make tremendous problems in this cosmic battle. That's what forgiveness is all about, though. When we fail, what do we do? The writer John, this dear old man, he was probably in his 90s when he wrote, he uh, uses the expression constantly in his letters, my little children, and you can just see him as he's sharing about this after a life of walking with Christ. He said, if we confess our sins, if we agree with God that we have wronged him, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul pointed out sometimes as we face suffering, he said, we're knocked down, but we're never knocked out, and we can go on in victory. Finally, I want to emphasize that if this is true, then we need to focus our attention not on the things of this world. We need to focus our attention on our commander, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 goes on to say since we're encompassed by this cloud of witnesses let's lay aside every weight it's as if we're running with lead weights on let's lay them aside, strip them off and the sin which so easily dogs our steps and run with patience and endurance the race which is set before us keeping our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. What does that mean? There was a war that took place In the Middle Ages between an older king and a younger king. They battled without any conclusive outcome to the battles for a number of years. And finally the old king said, I've had enough of this. We're going to take care of this young upstart. And so he organized his armies. They went to battle. The young king was defeated and as he was brought before the older king in chains, the older king looked at him and decided to give the young man a chance. And he said, young man, You're going to pay for this with your life. But I am willing to give you one chance. I'm going to give you a giant cooking pot filled with water to the brim. And if you can take that pot, this heavy iron pot filled with water, and walk through the streets of the city from one end to the other without spilling one single drop, you've won your life. On the other hand, if you should drop one single drop, two swordsmen will be following you and they will cut off your head immediately. The day came. The young prince was faced with this huge pot filled with water and he puts his ar- put his arms around it and began his walk. The city was lined with people. The crowd on the one side were cheering him on saying, Watch out. Take it easy. Watch your step. Keep going. Don't drop any. On the other side of the street was a crowd lining the side that said, You'll never make it. Oh, look out. You're going to trip. You're going to drop it all. You're going to be killed. And behind him marched two swordsmen. But the young prince just marched on, step for step. And finally he reached his goal at the end of the city and he set the pot down. And they brought him in front of the older king. And the old man said... Young man, you've won your life. But I have a question for you. How did you manage to do it? How did you manage to go without dropping one single drop? Didn't you notice the crowds cheering you on on the one side and the people cheering you against you on the other? Didn't you think about the swordsman? And the young prince looked at him with astonishment on his face and he said, What crowd? What swordsman? I just kept my eyes ahead of me, my entire attention was fixed on that pot and on my goal. I didn't hear a crowd. I was unaware of any swordsman behind me. That's how we have to be in relationship to Jesus Christ. There may be crowds on the left of us or right of us cheering us on or blaming us and accusing us. There may be danger behind us. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says that we're to keep our eyes fixed only on one single point, And that's Jesus Christ. And that really makes all of the difference in the world. That's how we can be significant. In a small place, maybe out of the way, we can play a part in the battle of the ages by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith.